Hi, I'm Yusuf Hassan. And I'm Ahmed Solomon, and you're listening to Africa Aware, a podcast from the Africa programme at Chatham House. Welcome back to Africa Aware. This episode explores the ongoing drought in the Horn of Africa, with a focus on policy responses to this deeply troubling situation. Senior UN leaders have described the region as being at the front line of the global climate emergency, and recent figures show an estimated 18.4 million people in the Horn of Africa, forcibly displaced people and host communities alike, now face severe hunger, unprecedented food insecurity and water shortages. 7.1 million children in Ethiopia, Kenya and Somalia are acutely malnourished. On this episode, Ahmed and I are joined by two senior leaders focused on responding to the drought in their respective roles. Ahmed speaks to Abdurrahman Abdishakur, Special Presidential Envoy on the Drought Response for the Federal Republic of Somalia, and I speak to Pavel Angala, Oxfam's Regional Director for the Horn, East and Central Africa. We hope this episode is informative and enlightens you, our listeners, on this issue. Abdurrahman Abdishakur Warsame currently serves as the Special Presidential Envoy for Drought Response for the Federal Republic of Somalia. He formerly served as the Minister for National Planning and International Cooperation and as a Member of Parliament. Welcome to Africa Aware. It's it's really an honour to have you back at Chatham House and, and this time your first time on our podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Ahmed, and nice to meet you again. So the, the conversation we're having today focused on the situation of drought in the Horn of Africa region and in particular in Somalia comes off the back of recent announcement from from the UN uh, that parts of the country are on the edge of famine. Uh, For those unaware, Somalia has experienced four failed rainy seasons uh, in a row dating back to October 2020 and to make things worse you have the kind of concurrent impacts of the conflict in Ukraine with severe grain shortages, which are required, of course, to offset this in terms of food aid. As Special Envoy tasked with leading Somalia's response to drought, could you kindly provide our audience with an overview of of the current situation? I think Somalia faces the worst drought uh, in, in 40 years. And subsequently, the hunger crisis threatened to escalate beyond the 2011 famine. Uh, which claimed the life is of quarter of of million of Somalis. Over past two years, as you said, failed four consecutive rainy seasons, uh, which caused 70% decrease in our crop productions and the death of 3 million livestock. Forecast predicted by dry conditions to continue in 2023 to add to the strain of reduced local food production and the depletion of families' personal stocks over time, we have not been able to supplement with international supplies. In Somalia, we source around three-quarters of our grain imports from Ukraine and much of the remainder from the Russia. In addition to that, it's skyrocketing for food and water prices as well as the scarcity of both have 
meant that families are unable to cope and hunger is arising fast, particularly for rural uh, farming communities and displaced populations. So the situation is uh, very critical. We, this drought has impacted or affected by the 7.8 million Somalis. 1.4 million of them are children. 500,000 of that children are facing acute malnutrition. And one million people displaced by the drought. And they come to the main cities. So you are facing one of the worst, as I said, humanitarian uh, crisis Somalia have faced the last 40 years. That does really bring home the real seriousness of the situation and the urgency of the response. Mm. We've seen over the last decade longer that uh, donor states, uh, multilateral bodies, uh, they've been criticized for you know the lack of transparency in aid delivery, the lack of I think, joined up coordination in that process. Of course, as you're leading uh, Somalia's efforts to su secure substantial funds to respond to the crisis, can you speak to how you, you know, the current administration, the current federal government, yourself and your colleagues are, are, are acting differently, are working to, to kind of change some of the structures and, and relationships with the international community? The president, the one who was uh, elected, the first thing he did was to appoint me as his special envoy for drought response before even he appointed his prime minister and his cabinet. That shows how he prioritized the drought response. And also effectively and immediately when I was appointed, I figured out what has the most urgent and important thing to do. We were facing that shortage of funding to humanitarian response. When I come to the uh, appointment, there is only 18% uh, funding secured. And we started a strategy of resource mobilization and, and advocacy, uh, bringing the international community uh, attention to the Somalia. And also we uh, try to coordinate efforts of humanitarian response among the federal government and federal member states. We try to easy and lift all the red tapes against humanitarian assistance. We uh, launched campaign of awareness among the Somalis inside the country and under diaspora to support each other and raise the profile of the of the, the magnitude of the crisis. And that has led some international uh, donors and to come and help, particularly uh, United States and. United Kingdom, some and Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Emirates, and some other European countries. The urgent priority of Somali government is to end this crisis and prevent famine and mitigate a potential mass of loss of lives. That's our, our aim. However, we don't want uh, our country to be in this same position in two or three or ten years from now. We are calling for partnership and investment that help build our country's resilience through the climate adaptation, mitigation and sustainable development so that we break the cycle of the crisis and are no longer so heavily reliant on international, international aid. When it comes to the issue of transparency and accountability, for a moment, 
Somalia, we are a country who is coming out from the uh, conflict. And we are paying our utmost effort to reform our financial institutions, to come with more accountability to the humanitarian assistance, and to be more transparent and open to the uh, international system. I think with such an approach, the international community will continue to spend millions of, of, of dollars in aid each year to Somalia for generations to come. It is better to invest in the resilience and, and recovery projects and have access to the uh, uh, climate uh, financing and climate justice uh, and financing because we are the most affected people on the climate change and less contributors to the, to the climate change. So we are the victims of, of the climate change. I think this is a, a really significant point that you raise and one which, you know, hopefully will be a significant part of the conversation uh, at the upcoming COP, you know, the African COP as, as it's known. But I think we're seeing the impacts of, as you say, this worsening climate change across the Horn of Africa region. Um, and clearly it's having a link to, to conflict and to pervasive conflict. Certainly from the prospect of, of making, you know, the conditions worse for people and exacerbating those factors uh, related to conflict, if not being the trigger for conflict, you know, when resources are so stretched in particular and there's increased competition over those resources. So you, you touched upon it, uh, Abdi. I wanted to ask about how the federal government is working with the federal member states, local administrations, and non-state actors to ensure that that humanitarian assistance is secure, that delivery reaches those who need it most, uh, that it's kept out of the hands of hostile actors, armed actors, uh, including Al-Shabaab, who, who would, of course, seek to benefit themselves from that. And how you see that nexus between conflict and climate change and, and, and the impact it's having in the Horn. That's a good question. We are really aware about the scarcity of the resources. So when uh, there is not enough food or water, uh, leads to conflict, not just in relation to the terror groups like Al-Shabaab, but also between the communities, uh, which you might have traditional grievances. We say uh, this recently when disagreement between two uh, communities or tribes of a borehole uh, to access to clean water. Which is harder and harder to find as a drought continues, caused by the death of the uh, more than ten people, uh, to fight on on that uh, access of clean water. This is sadly not a unique incident, in, and and I'm very much concerned that if the crisis is allowed to to continue to escalate, we will see a prevalence of such an instance uh, raised. So. In relation to the uh, federal government and federal member states relationship, as you are aware, still we are in the process of uh, constitutional review where allocation of power, resource, and revenue uh, are not yet agreed. In that sense, uh, always there is a competence, uh, competing competencies among the federal uh, member states, between the federal member states and federal government. And, and it is um, our utmost priorities to also uh, finalize the constitutional review process in order to ease and, 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 and make clear 
uh, uh, the roles and, and, and competencies of each uh, uh, entities. But in meantime, to respond to the current drought issue, we agreed uh, a president, uh, president of federal government, Hashag Mahmoud, and, and other leaders of federal member states agreed to ease any, any humanitarian and, you know, response access or, or activities and to uh, prioritize uh, security, humanitarian and response, as well as debt uh, uh, relief. That's the three main components that the leaders of federal government and federal member states agreed open to prioritize. Uh, in terms of the issue of the climate, as we said, Somalia is least contributors to the climate change, but uh, most affected the consequences of, of, of the climate change. That's why we are calling to African partnership and African uh, voice uh, towards COP27 uh, in order to have access more funding of climate change and climate uh, justice financing. And it is very uh, critical to uh, leave that reality of climate change and adapt that situation of uh, uh, created by the climate change and invest the resilience and adaptation uh, programs to live with that new reality of, of climate change. Coming to a kind of more domestic related question as well, governments, are, they often act on, on a macro level, you know, through international engagement. But uh, civil society, non-state actors, including businesses, citizens, Somali diaspora, they, they form really the, the backbone of the community response and support, uh, particularly for those who are most in need across the country. Um, is the federal government coordinating with and, and empowering these agents in their response to drought? Uh, yes, absolutely. And the first thing that the government did was to establish uh, a committee com- consists of the civil society, religious leaders, business community, and they contributed uh, as much as they can to to the drought response uh, and, and uh, issues. And also, we are engaging in one of my uh, assignments is what to engage uh, a Somali diaspora. That's why I'm here in UK uh, and recording this podcast uh, in Jetham House to engage with them this coming Sunday. I, I, I went to the Minneapolis and I went to, to the Toronto. Now I'm in London. I'm heading to the other capitalists that uh, uh, have a substantial number of Somali uh, diaspora. Somali diaspora are very vital to our um, economy. They uh, contribute 37% of our GBD, GDP. They also... Uh, bring back expertise and investment to, to, to the country. And they were vital to preventing farming in 2017. So that's why I'm, I come to engage and talk and, and bring their attention to the uh, magnitude of the crisis that the uh, uh, Somali now faces. They are vital also uh, lobbying and talking to the decision makers in the, in the, in, in the big capitalists like London and Toronto and, 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 and Washington as well as the uh, uh, Stockholm, because they have uh, representation, they are active in in, in political system there. So we need uh, uh, an an effort to contribute to the right response, and it is very critical. Speaking a bit on this theme, one of our key themes for for this year, which is the 20th year of the Africa program, is African agency, which 
is often thrown about with, you know, the term African solutions to African problems, which we know that there are complexities with. Our view is, is firmly that Africa should and does and can provide solutions to global issues as well as to those that are on the continent. And whilst we, you know, we have been talking about the need for a coordinated response and international support on, on the drought uh, response in Somalia, can you tell me what role um, are African leaders across the sectors playing in response to the current drought? You know, do you have coordination or discussions with your counterparts in other African states? And, and what lessons really can the world, should the world learn from Somalia uh, and the wider continent in, in this regard? We are talking to the, our neighbors about the uh, drought response. Uh, it was good to have uh, a border reopened between Kenya and, and Somalia. And as well as the uh, last uh, talk between the federal uh, president of federal government and the prime minister in Ethiopia, which has a very fruitful result on, in terms of uh, one of the items of discussion was included the drought response. And as well as the uh, how African countries come together and address the issue of that causes the drought, the, the climate change, the conflict, and deforestation also. So I think through the IGAT, we, we try to uh, address all that issues. And I was talking to the, the IGAT Secretary General, and there is a conference in, in, in this week in, in Nairobi uh, to discuss more about the, about the issue. I think we are now, and uh, African leaders are realizing that unless we address the root cause of the, this uh, uh, drought, recurrent of the drought, we cannot deal always the symptoms of the of the causes, which is the uh, drought. We have to address and and the root cause of it, and 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 it is great uh, to have COP twenty seventeen in 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 Africa, uh, and 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 Egypt hosts in and, and next month, uh, and and that is where. African leaders are supposed to come together and, and unite their voice in order to face uh, and, and get access to the climate change adaptation finance and also climate justice finance. Thank you very much, Abdi. It's been a real honor to have you share your thoughts with us uh, on the podcast and our, our, our utmost best wishes to you and your colleagues in, in this very important role you have. Thank you. And I'm very glad to come back to the Jotham House. Thank you very much. Pavanangala is a senior development and humanitarian expert with over 20 years work experience with the UN and international NGOs. She is currently the regional director for Oxfam International in the Horn East and Central Africa region. Prior to Oxfam, she worked with numerous development and humanitarian international NGOs, including CARE, World Vision, and UNHCR. Good morning, Parvin. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Yusuf. Now, when it comes to this incredibly, of course, difficult situation, as we find in the Horn of Africa, a recent Oxfam press release stated that one person is likely to die of hunger every 36 seconds between now and the end of the year in drought-ravaged East Africa as the worst-hit areas hurtled towards famine. This is incredibly strong language, but needed. Could you kindly provide our audiences with an overview of the current situation? 
Yeah, thanks, uh, Yusuf. And uh, indeed, it is strong language. It is needed. And it is unfortunate that uh, in the 21st century, we are talking about hunger to these levels. Uh, at the moment, what we are seeing within the Horn of Africa is uh, across uh, four countries, uh, Ethiopia, Somalia, Kenya, and South Sudan, we have had, unfortunately, um, you know, four failed uh, consecutive rainy seasons, which has meant, you know, that at the moment, in terms of numbers, we have approximately 31 million people who are facing acute food insecurity. And uh, even uh, looking at that, 6 million children already face uh, uh, acute malnutrition. So it is very much concerning for us that in this day and age, we are dealing with this kind of uh, uh, level of uh, food insecurity. And, you know, looking at the region, the fact that uh, it is something which we have highlighted um, over the last couple of years, you know, coming from 2020 with the impact of COVID, that uh, we did see the signs early on and uh, have been raising alarms around the fact that uh, the crisis was evolving and uh, growing to a scale. So much so that as we speak, while we're saying 31 million people, last year at around the same time, we were talking about 11 million people. But unfortunately, what we tend to see within the, uh, the, the, you know, the sector, the world, is that uh, response is always based not on, uh, on risks or anticipating risks, but instead on responding to what is eventually usually a crisis situation, which is really unfortunate uh, in the bigger schemes of things, especially in terms of impact on women. Uh, children and, you know, people generally across uh, the region. Thank you so much for your insights there. And, you know, as a leader and a senior leader of an incredibly important organization seeking to support those affected, governments often act on a macro level. Mm. Society Mm. and non-state actors, including businesses, citizens and the diaspora, Mm. often form the backbone of community responses when it comes to supporting those in need. How is Oxfam working with and empowering these local communities in response to the current situation? One of the things that uh, for us became more and more important is uh, lessons that we learned uh, from the 2011 famine within the Horn of Africa region. Unfortunately, uh, then we had over 250 million, uh, 250,000 people dying uh, due to hunger. And uh, as a result of this, we, you know, sort of uh, made a commitment, you know, as a sector, together with our partners, saying that never again, you know, that we would look to make sure that we take early action. We would look to work with local partners, you know, who are at the forefront uh, in working with communities to be able to respond as early as possible to risks as we see them. So at the moment, Oxfam is very much, you know, invested in working with local partners across the countries uh, that uh, are currently impacted. And uh, as we speak, for instance, with uh, uh, in Ethiopia, we are responding by um, uh, by supporting, especially on food security, with uh, in-kind and cash-based food distribution. We are also looking at life, uh, livestock feed support, livelihood uh, seeds and tools distribution, and also rehabilitation of, uh, of water systems. And uh, within um, uh, Kenya, um, in this case, uh, we've also developed uh, quite a strong partnership where we're working with what is called ASAL, Humanitarian Network, ASAL standing for arid and semi-arid lands, uh, very much speaking to the areas where in Kenya we are facing the most um, uh, food insecurity. So we're working with them uh, also in collaboration with the private sector to provide uh, assistance, especially through multi-purpose cash assistance. We are also working on uh, water sanitation and um, hygiene 
support, especially in terms of facilities and also protection uh, uh, support, especially uh, in situations such as this, we tend to see an increase in uh, sexual gender-based violence. And so, especially as we talk about women, you know, trying to walk further and further in start of water, women trying to look at different means in terms of supporting their livelihoods, but also, you know, the impact around uh, education on on, on young girls, because more, more often than not, what we have seen in some of these situations is uh, children, young girls being married off early because uh, the families are not able to feed them. So they're looking at different ways in which they can be able to both get um, resources for their families and also feed those whom they have. So that is in Kenya. In uh, Somalia, we also have uh, a major uh, drought response uh, program, which we are also working with local partners uh, to uh, look at um, uh, food uh, support, um, protection services, and water, and also water uh, services. Again, very much, you know, uh, leveraging on our experience in the country. And as we speak, you mentioned earlier your visit to Somalia some time ago, and really some of the messages come out, coming out of Somalia that uh, at the moment it is, you know, we are facing, you know, famine-like conditions. And uh, the IPC report that was uh, re- uh, released uh, uh, last month was talking about likely by December, you know, facing famine uh, in the in the country. So that's something we are really, you know, sort of working with partners in terms of immediate uh, life-saving assistance. In South Sudan, we have the same uh, kind of interventions, very much working with partners, looking at food security, water uh, uh, support, and also protection, especially for those who are uh, most impacted, uh, Yusuf. Thank you for that regional overview. Of course, earlier in the episode, we spoke about Somalia in particular, but I think the wider impact of this drought and and, and possible famine in many of these countries is something that we are really monitoring, especially as uh, as you mentioned, I I had a recent visit to Somaliland, um, where my parents come from, and I, I, I for one, saw the immediate work being done on the ground to try and support communities uh, in the most devastating circumstances. Now... These devastating circumstances, of course, um, do not come out of nowhere. This issue is not a new one, sadly, mm. to the region. Mm. And it would be interesting to hear, what do you believe are the long-term mitigation measures that must be taken in order to avoid a return to this situation in the near future? Climate change continues to drastically impact our environment and weather systems. And of course, that will mean that issues like this may arise again. So it'd be great to hear your thoughts on that. I'd like to posit the issue of long term on the basis of what has gotten us to this place in the first place. And uh, as we talk about climate change, uh, you know, climate change in terms of the analysis at the moment, when we look, when we talk about carbon emissions, uh, you know, globally within the African continent, uh, we have a contribution in terms of calculations of less than 4% of carbon emissions. As we talk about the countries, the four countries that are currently impacted heavily within the Horn of Africa uh, region, they have uh, less than 0.1% contribution to the global uh, carbon emissions. And when we talk about uh, uh, US, China already in themselves contributing 45%. So we have to still go back to what got us to this place. And the fact that unfortunately, what we do see is that uh, people, you know, communities, uh, you know, uh, such as those who are living in the Horn of Africa are the ones who are paying the price of these uh, decisions, of these uh, processes, industrial processes, that we see the climate change impact uh, manifested in the form of droughts such as what we're experiencing within the Horn of Africa region. So part of what we see as uh, the long-term 
uh, element of this is very much about the investment, the investment and, you know, uh, sort of uh, res- uh, meeting up to their responsibilities, you know, in terms of, you know, some of what is presented as uh, the Paris Agreement, for example, in climate financing, saying, you know, how do they support countries which are facing the impacts of climate uh, uh, change and who are vulnerable to the uh, climatic shocks, you know. And what we have seen at the moment, unfortunately, is that uh, uh, these commitments are not being met. You know, these commitments are very much needed, you know, in these countries to both look at adaptation, you know, uh, support, but also to look at the loss and damage, you know, to support the loss and damage. And so one of the things we're talking about, even as we prepare for COP27, which is being held on the African continent in Egypt in November, is how we make sure that these conversations, these issues, we do have commitments around it, both in terms of climate finance for uh, adaptation, but also, you know, for support, especially in terms of the loss and damage. Now, when we talk about the alleviation element of it, I will reference to uh, the fact that, uh, you know, earlier I had talked about the immediate, uh, the resources needed for immediate uh, assistance, you know, that... uh, uh, there is an element where, you know, in as much as we're talking about long term, we have to be able to work with the community that is currently, that we need to move to that long term. And as I mentioned earlier, 6 million children currently facing acute malnutrition means we are, we are shaping an unfortunate future, you know, for these children. Because when you think about it, especially for under five, these are, you know, the developmental stages that are critical to the role that they play in the future. So immediate assistance is very uh, important. And as we speak, we have a, a three billion US dollar gap of the UN appeal, you know, that has been put out. The other element to it, in terms of long-term thinking, is about the investment in critical sectors. You know, at the moment, some of the critical sectors that we have seen are around uh, agriculture, and uh, how we look at agriculture, especially at a time when climatic shocks, you know, tend to impact especially smallholder farmers smallholder farmers who on the continent, you know, in the region, nearly are 80% of those who uh, sort of are uh, involved in the, in the, in the farming um, uh, cycle. So that means, you know, for we do need the resources, we need to be able to uh, work with different partners to make sure that uh, the investment in agriculture is there. We've seen decisions, for instance, with different uh, international finance uh, institutions who which are pushing governments, you know, to sort of focus a lot more at the moment on the debt payment, which, you know, was one of the burdens that we as an African continent within the Horn of Africa have borne out of the COVID pandemic, uh, you know, in terms of uh, resources. Uh, We do have at the moment, unfortunately, 51% of, uh, you know, sort of uh, income uh, within the the region, uh, within the continent, being directed towards uh, debt uh, repayment. And so uh, one of the things we are saying is that, uh, Many of our governments need the resources to be able to invest in agriculture, need the resources to be able to invest in social protection, uh, especially for vulnerable communities that continue to be impacted by economic and climatic uh, uh, shocks. But I think the other part of it is about how do we prevent the next crisis, you know? And so, as we uh, mentioned earlier about risks, you know, investing more in early warning systems, anticipatory action so that, you know, we can be able to alleviate this crisis because as we have seen, we've seen a trend here, you know, 2011, we had a famine within the region, uh, uh, which was very unfortunate in terms of over a quarter billion people dying. 2017, we did much better. We released a report where we talked about dangerous delays, you know, that 2017, we were able to mobilize resources and 
as it were, alleviate the level of impact that we saw in 20, uh, 2011. But then come 2022, we are not, you know, heeding the same uh, sort of call that we made then and are seeing the kind of impact in terms of, uh, even at the moment, talking about of, uh, doubling and tripling of figures in terms of uh, people being uh, impacted by food insecurity within the region. So how do we then prevent the next crisis? Because with climate change, we know that some of these issues, such as drought, you know, the, the extreme weather events will continue to occur. And unfortunately, it is the most vulnerable people in these countries that will be impacted. Most definitely. And, and thank you so much for that robust response in what must be done to ensure we don't go back into the situation. And to end, a key theme for the Africa program um, in the year of our 20th anniversary is African agency, which is often mischaracterized as African solutions for African problems. Mm. We believe, of course, that Africa can also provide solutions to global issues, not just for themselves. Whilst, of course, we recognize that there is, you know, a need for international support, a need for international engagement on this incredibly difficult situation as a leader in the region. What role are African leaders across all sectors playing in response mm. to the current drought? And what lessons can the world learn from the region and the wider continent with regards to this issue? Yes, absolutely. There's definitely a lot of lessons that we can learn from the African continent in terms of how we respond to, uh, to this drought, how we respond to this, uh, uh, the crisis. I would, in fact, broaden it because when you talk about crisis, you know that food insecurity is but one of the crises in on the African continent. We, we have conflicts, we have you know economic uh, crises that are being experienced also across the uh, the continent. So I'll highlight a couple of things which I think you know in, in terms of lessons uh, could very well also be reflected uh, globally. One of the things I will highlight is uh, you know so, so some of the thinking that has been going into the Africa Union Malabo Protocol, where there was quite a focus on um, investment or encouraging uh, governments within uh, the African, uh, on the African continent to have at least 10% of their uh, budgets allocated to agriculture. And the thing about this is uh, that uh, there's a specific element in terms of looking at smallholder farmers. Unfortunately, as we see at the moment, we see, we, we see a lot of that the global food system is very much uh, focused on big, you know, agribusiness, you know, which is really at the expense and, and exploiting smallholder farmers and food producers. So that element of this is something that we feel, you know, is something that uh, definitely takes lessons from not just, you know, the, the African continent, but across uh, the globe. We have noted, for example, the unfortunate experience where, you know, with the Ukraine crisis, you know, how that has impacted the globe, you know, in terms of different parts of the world and how that is reminding us that uh, we cannot afford, you know, to just think in terms of big, you know, uh, agribusiness, but look at how we work, you know, in terms of uh, uh, supporting uh, smallholder farmers in different parts of the world to be able to be, you know, contributing to the different value chains, which then connects to my second bit around uh, what we have also uh, as the Africa Free uh, Trade Continental Agreement, you know, that uh, there's an element where out of that, the idea really is to be able to build regional markets, regional value chains, and again, how that connects, you know, because there's lessons already emerging that what we had previously in terms of idealism around globalization, you know, potentially undermines, you know, the resilience of communities in small pockets that could very well, you know, especially now as we see different forms of crisis, COVID, you know, economic, uh, climate, that 
distorts, you know, or reduces the resilience of communities because of the mechanism that is sort of interconnected. So how do we look at how we build on uh, regional markets, regional capabilities, so that we reduce the, the vulnerabilities to this global, as it were, uh, uh, shocks? The other thing that I would say is around um, what we're seeing within also uh, many of uh, our countries is an investment in social protection as mechanisms, especially in terms of supporting uh, vulnerable communities. I would, of course, say that what we are also trying to do is add this to be mechanisms that are expanded, not just only for drought, for example, you know, countries such as Kenya, where we're talking about, you know, drought as one of the uh, crises, but, you know, we saw great examples of during COVID being able to draw out, you know, uh, the social protection system that had been set up, you know, uh, at the time to respond to, uh, to drought, to expand this to different kind of uh, shocks that communities are facing. And my last thing, you know, especially because as an African continent within the Horn of Africa, I'm currently in Nairobi, Kenya, where we see a lot of learning, you know, in terms of uh, digital platforms, digital technology. You mentioned uh, Yusuf, uh, Somalia. I admire the resilience of the youth of the African continent and the fact that they are, as it were, part of what will inform, you know, what will be the drive for the future. So how do we leverage the development, especially in terms of thinking, innovation on the African continent to be able to actually be part of the solutions, even globally? We've seen a lot of learning, you know, in Kenya, for instance, just the mobile money technology as a system that has now been adopted across, across the world, you know. And so I would say that there's definitely a lot that we can take from the African continent and use it in different spaces. But I, I, I still would like to reiterate that there is an element in terms of resources where we know that there are certain policies, there are certain commitments, there are certain responsibilities that still have to be met, you know, by, especially in this case, as we talk about the food insecurity crisis, the super polluters, that means we need to, re to resource some of the things that are already on the table in terms of, of course, ideas on how we as an African continent address the issues that are on the African continent. Also. Thank you so much for uh, such an insightful response to that question. And of course, thank you so much for agreeing to be interviewed. I wish you well, and I hope the work that you're doing is successful in being able to support citizens across the Horn in responding to this incredibly challenging moment. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Yusuf. And that brings us to an end of this episode of Africa Aware. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Please do subscribe to us on the platform that you're listening to us on to ensure you don't miss an episode. And do leave a review as that will allow others to find this podcast easier. Thanks for listening to Africa Aware. I've been your host, Yusuf Hassan, joined earlier by my colleague, Ahmed Suleiman. Goodbye.